This is Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. It's Saturday, 5 p.m. I'm hungry and I am Andre Pru. And I'm Maroki Pong. And this Saturday is not like any other Saturday because this Saturday is also Canada Day. Yeah. And I know we often joke on this show that if you learn something from us, it's a bit by accident. Um, you know, our program director, Amanda Cupido, I think would be very proud of the fact that we did a little more homework than usual this week. So hopefully you're going to learn something on purpose this week. <laughs> you make it sound like we never prepare for these shows, Andre, which we definitely do. I... <laughs> well, you know what? I think if, we're, you're, we... if you're a producer and you're listening in, just so you know, we have a spreadsheet where we prepare for the show each week. But I, I, but I think for this particular show, Andre, you were definitely planning weeks in advance, and you know, you gave a, you put a lot of thought into preparing well, for this show. You know, I, I we're a food and drink show, so we try to be a little bit lighthearted. But I do think it's important that you know. I think as people who've listened to the show for a long time know, food is a lot more political and politically charged and, I mean, connected to the identity of culture than I think a lot of people want to give it credit for. You know, I I think you kind of have an option, like a lot of athletes, who don't have a choice in being role models but are inevitably role models and when they become outspoken and people don't like what they say you know when Laura Ingram famously told LeBron James to shut up and dribble I mean whether you like it or not these things are interconnected to society in a broader way and that is the lens under which we are approaching our candidate show this week Mm-hmm, absolutely, for sure. And I mean, as the child of immigrants, you know, Canada represents the land of opportunity for us. However, it is certainly that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm not going to reflect and consider um, making Canada. If, if, if I'm here for hope and I'm here to have better opportunity, I want to ensure that everyone has the same equal opportunities that I do as well. So, I mean, let's start off with food, considering yeah. that we are talking about Canada, and I think it, it. I love describing Canada as a multicultural nation, yeah. and diversity. I think is part of our mosaic for sure. At least that's what you know. My his that's what my history books taught me when I was a kid. I always believed in our multicultural mosaic, but I think um, I think all of us struggle a little bit when it comes to talking about what is quintessentially Canadian. And I, yeah, you know, since we're a food and drink show, what is Canadian food? This is I was actually really looking forward to having this conversation with with you because like I know it's something we touched on, like especially when we spent a lot of time on Asian Heritage Month. Um, you know, when we unpacked with Anne Hui talking about the Chinese Canadian cuisine, you know. That is a really distinctly Chinese and I guess North American. We we share a lot of, and I'm sure like Chinese immigrants to North America share a lot of the recipes, but it is very much a part of the fabric of Canada. And I think about it as someone who is, uh, you know, on one side of my family, I'm French Canadian. My family's been in the country for a few hundred years. And on the other side of the family, I'm Hungarian and German. And, you know, when I sit down and, and look and like we talk about, I guess, kind of like the first batch of very white immigrants who've come to Canada, one thing we forgot to do is develop our own style of cuisine. And I know I'd like to be like very critical of the the Michelin Guide, but you talk about, um, you know, the the importance of the, the, the multicultural diversity and strength of Canada. If I can say something nice about the Michelin Guide that I've been critical of, you know, taking a look at the fact that 
the best restaurants in Toronto are not serving poutine and maple syrup and tortiere. It's sushi restaurants, you know, it's Thai restaurants, Indian restaurants, uh, Vietnamese restaurants. Like it's a lot of, um, you know, people who weren't part of that first wave of immigration to Canada. Mm -hmm. And I guess it begs the question of, it, it, it was something you said leading up to this segment before we hit record. And it was a, sort of about how you don't necessarily love the notion that Canada's um, identity is framed by poutine and maple syrup. Maybe more poutine. You seem to you kind of spat the word well, okay. a little bit. And but but that, but that's the thing is like I, I I love poutine. I love poutine a lot. Like I love how poutine has taken a life of its own. I love the fact that you're now seeing other cultures adding their influence, like uh, butter chicken poutine or you know. If you get a chance to have poutine with a big scoop of like just good old fashioned, you know, Napa cabbage uh, um, kimchi on it, you know, you're bringing balance to a dish that's otherwise just like salty, fatty mush and you get acid and crispness to it, crispness to it. I highly recommend it. But it's just like, you know, I've done the, the, the Chinese uh, wedding banquet like for Chinese New Year Maroki and it is awesome, and everyone listening to this radio station should find a reason, a time, and an excuse to do it. Um, you know, when I, I traveled to France, we spent uh, the show last week talking about my French adventures, and you get off that plane, and you know what French cuisine is. It's on every street corner in every city in France. Same thing with Italy. But you get off the plane in Canada. Where are the Canadian restaurants? Yeah, I think maybe what we the reason why we um, talk about poutine being a punchline a little bit is that there's not really gourmet experience. And I think as you and I are foodies, once we eat the poutine, what what else is there? Right. It's it's like we shouldn't define entire um, nation's cuisine on just poutine alone and i think it becomes a little bit more of a joke than than anything and <laughs> i remember actually you're, you're triggering a memory for me i remember when i first moved to toronto and you know got into my foodie adventures one of the things i always tried to do was taste all the different types of cuisine that existed and i remember at one point think going to myself i think it was like during winter delicious or whatever i'm like i'm gonna look for quint like canadian cuisine and i was like i don't i don't know what that means and maybe you know since we're asking what canadian cuisine looks to us and we've already kind of uh criticized the lack of it what what does it mean to you so i'll tell you what it means to me very very quickly after years of trying to explore canadian cuisine i think the closest I could say was that it's cuisine that I guess represent like is as farm to table as possible. Like I'm looking for wild meats. I'm looking for foraged foods. There's just like this out this idea like, you know, in Canada's always like true north and we were made for this. Like a lot of our a lot of um, I guess our like country's brandings around the great outdoors and so therefore our cuisine should reflect food that comes from the great outdoors yeah but i mean it's in terms of like the combination of flavors and ingredients like we talk about the influence of the people who are, are cooking it is it's just like it's not like we had those really great techniques develop in canada right like because a lot of people brought their their techniques of cooking here it's all informed by elsewhere so i guess in one way 
it really is the definition of, of Canada and Canada as it's evolving. But on the, on the other hand, it's just like, we know what, 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 like, what do we bring to the table? You know? Well, it's interesting that you're saying um, that, you know, comes from, it, it comes from the influence of other people or, you know, and I don't want to, I feel like, you know, th we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but there was this moment when I was, when I was saying all the things I'm saying, I'm like, my goodness, it feels like, you know, if I'm talking about, if we're talking about food, you know, taking food from the land and people before us, there's a part of me that feels like maybe Canadian food should be indigenous cuisine. You know, and that's something I'm looking forward to shining a spotlight on later on in the show where we'll be joined by a special guest. Um, but before we get to that, coming up after the break, uh, you did your homework on the next segment where you've compiled a list of the great things to eat and do on Canada Day that may not be front of mind that will also be fun, but will make you think. So stick around. We'll be back right after the break on 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Well, Andre, through on our last segment, we were chatting a lot about Canadian cuisine for Canada Day, but what are you eating today for Canada Day anyways? Oh, I am a diehard fire up the barbecue. Um, as much as I do actually enjoy poutine, even though it felt like I was kind of crapping on it in the last segment. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think this is like I'm, I'm a, a fire up the smoker. Canada Day is definitely a time to relax and, and hang out with family. So it'll be some smoked ribs. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably what a lot of people think about when they're doing when they're celebrating Canada Day. But I think it's important to know that like Canada Day, it is not necessarily a day of celebration for a lot of people. And, um, you know, I think in 2021, it was May, you know, 2021, I think more than any other year recently, we were kind of, you know, given a really harsh reminder that Canada doesn't have the nicest history. I think it's not even just that Canada doesn't have the nicest history. It's the fact that we're kind of going on and on. There's a large number of people. I'm, I'm sure there's people who in the car right now who just don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear about the fact that, um, you know, there's that old expression that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And that while Canada may have been built on good intentions, it doesn't mean that a lot of awful things were not done during our history. And we're finally at the point where it's time to start to acknowledge this awful part of our history so we can get to a point where we can move forward and make Canada better as a nation. Mm -hmm. And we're beating around the bush a bit, but yeah. obviously <laughs> that it, that's ta we're, we're talking about indigenous reconciliation. And honestly, I was thinking a lot about this coming into the segment because I don't even have the right answer. I know that there's a lot more attention now on indigenous people's day, which happened on June 21st this year, but you know, it's they do. It's like they do the recognizing of the culture, and then we roll into July first, almost a, a week afterwards. It just seems, I don't know. Like for me, it almost seems a little disingenuous. So I don't, I don't have the right answer. But yeah. I, guess, I guess what I want to call attention to is that today is not necessarily a good day for a lot of people, and there is a lot of we have a lot of dark history that we should be choosing to acknowledge, and possibly, and you know, not like poo poo on the people who don't want to celebrate Canada Day. I think that's a very fair point. Um, that being said, you have, I guess if there's a silver lining to this conversation where it's important that we're having these serious conversations, you did manage to put together 
a bit of a list of things to do or things to keep in mind for for next year where you can uh, maybe not celebrate but acknowledge Canada Day in an alternative way while paying respect to some of the other cultures that uh, maybe aren't you know, raw, raw, waving the flag today. And I think there is a way to do it in a respectful way. And I actually thought it was a pretty awesome list that you put together. Yeah, I I actually was trying to see whether there were Indigenous uh, or First Nation celebrations today. And I didn't find any outside of an artisan market that was happening in Hamilton. And I, I understand why, but I, I did notice that they did have celebrations like that in BC. They did it last year where they actually um, partnered with a lot of First Nations groups and they they showcased their music, they showcased their culture. And I hope we can see something more like that in the future. Um, I know today actually over at the Fort York National Historic Site, there was a programming celebrating Canada Day and the vibrancy of the Chinese Canadian communities and showing their contributions and it was ex actually extremely significant because this year was the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Immigration Act which was brought put into place July 1st 20, uh, 1923 which actually prohibited and banned Chinese immigrants into Canada so that is some that is actually a big act of reconciliation right there you know at 100 years later we have this incredible all-day activity where they had storytelling tours they actually had several food and uh, tasting demonstrations with owners of various restaurants like yutung haka restaurant um the bean sprout restaurant and mother's dumpling so i thought that was pretty cool and i'd love to see more of that in the future and tomorrow actually so if you're you know still celebrating your long weekend there's drag brunch happening over at glad day bookshop and i'm sure there's probably some around hanging around toronto and i think that's actually good because it's like hey guys Pride Month, it's not just, you know, you don't celebrate Pride only in June. It is something that happens every single day of the year. So what better way to kind of be like post-Canada Day, post-Pride, let's go to drag brunch. <laughs> you know, I guess just backing up to uh, to the um, Chinese Immigration Act, the anniversary of that, the event that took place at uh, Fort York yesterday. Um, I love the fact that th that Chinese Canadian cuisine, I know we talked a bit of it in the last segment, is becoming, I think, more and more uh, rising up as part of the identity of Canada. So I don't know, maybe next year for Canada Day, I'll have to go and order some Chinese food. Yeah, actually, uh, maybe this is a good time to just quickly talk about the significance of Chinese Canadian cuisine. So when we talked about the Chinese Immigration Act and a long time ago, essentially, there were a lot of laborers who were brought into Canada to build the railway. And after they were done, they were not allowed to work professional jobs and they were not granted citizenship. So the only jobs they could work were in hospitality. And a lot of these people basically opened little like mom and pop family owned restaurants using limited ingredients and with limited skill sets, because a lot of these people were not chefs by trade, trying to cook for the Western palate. So Dishes like chop suey and chicken balls and, um, uh, oh my God, it's not Kung Fu chicken. It's Kung Pao it chicken. Kung Pao chicken. Pao. <laughs> and Kung Pao chicken are actually as authentic as they come. And Chinese Canadian and Chinese American cuisine is very uniquely part of the fabric of Chinese culture here. And I think that's great. And actually, Andre, one thing I do want to bring up that I think is super cool is that it's continuing to evolve. So the Bean Sprout restaurant, yep. I learned they do fully gluten-free Chinese-Canadian oh. cuisine. Oh, interesting. So that is that is cool to hear. Um, yeah. and, and you know, you touched on a lot of stuff. Like if we go back to the shows that we did during Asian Heritage Month, we touched a little bit on the definition of authenticity of the Chinese-Canadian cuisine. We did that speaking with um, and Hui. 
And you touched on a big part of the um, story that we didn't get into with Anne, but if you want to hear a little bit more about it, you can go back and revisit the previous shows. It's all on the Global News website. And um, we put a lot of work into that. So, um, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I guess... um... I guess what I'm, I, what we're kind of alluding to a lot of this is that Canada Day, I think, is a holiday for most and all of us just want to take the day off and celebrate. And heck, like, who doesn't enjoy a day off? But I think it's um, extremely important that especially when these holidays have some sort of cultural significance or and sometimes that significance is not, you know, as, as we learn to evolve and understand our own culture and our people better, to learn how to kind of just take a moment to reflect and recognize that it isn't for everyone. In fact, you know, Canada Day also evolved from what was, it used to be called Dominion Day, which sort of celebrated our ties to the British monarchy, which is something that we most certainly don't do anymore. You know, it's like, that was a very like British, pro-British kind of holiday and became Canada Day because we wanted to move away from that. So if you kind of want to move more to if you if, if Canada Day continues to evolve I think it's all the more power to us as a people I think that's a great point to make though is uh you know there's a lot of people who cling to cling to tradition and aren't happy when anything changes like whether it's minor changes to the lyrics of O Canada or you know larger changes um that are necessary changes you know Canada Day hasn't always been one thing I guess moving off of this, and you're talking about our uh, colonial past, um, I think we're going to be unpacking that a little bit when we're talking a bit about what defines Canadian cuisine coming up after the break. Um, we are going to unpack which what I think is um, something that isn't as celebrated or isn't as widespread as it ought to be, in my opinion, and that's talking about Indigenous cuisine, as uh, I guess as it appears in the market i'm super excited to dig into the segment because i don't i certainly don't get a chance to eat enough indigenous cuisine i have some friends who are indigenous and they have cooked for me before and filled my belly with all of the delicious things so to dive into the cultural side of it the history of it and maybe the uniqueness between different indigenous tribes and cultures i would be curious to know if there's um more than just lumping it into one uh, and to kind of one food group per se, sort of like saying Asian food, right? Like there must be more than just indigenous cuisine. So we will be joined by a season 10 Top Chef Canada contestant, Chef Tanya Brandt. So stick around. We will make your mouths water with tasty things after the break on 640 Toronto. This is Tasting Together. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's News, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome back. I am Andre Pru. I am joined, as always, by Maroki Tong. And uh, we have a special guest on the line. We definitely do have a special guest, Andre. And I cannot wait for the chance <laughs> to speak with her. As everyone on the radio knows already, I am a huge Top Chef fan. And following Top Chef Canada Season 10, um, I was definitely rooting for this particular chef, Chef Tanya Brandt. And she's going to be a, uh, the expert that we're going to be chatting with when we're kind of digging into all things, or if, if, uh, if criticism is the right word, our criticism of Canadian food. Well, I think discussion is, 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 most, is most important here. But um, I mean, 
Tanya, I'm going to need you to correct me on any pronunciations here, but I was taking a look at Tanya's social media and uh, her one-line bio is Chef Tanya Brandt is a Mohawk Nation chef helping revive the traditional foods of the Haudenosaunee. 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 Okay. Haudenosaunee. Yeah, yeah. So thank you very much. I am, so, <laughs> yes, I am so glad you uh, you were the ones who uh, who kind of took the lead on that, Andre, because I did look up several pronunciations in advance of the interview, and I was still nervous <laughs> about pronouncing it right. <laughs> well, I think I think being being respectful is is our intent. So, chef, anything we mispronounce, just correct us, and we'll do our best to get it um, get it down. Now, we were talking about like the identity of Canadian cuisine, and it's one thing where, as someone who loves food, who's married to a chef. I'm always a little disappointed that when we talk about Canadian cuisine, poutine seems to be the only thing that people talk about. But um, Maroki and I wanted to talk to you just about Indigenous cuisine and how we're seeing a rise to it. Um, yeah, I think it's pretty easy to say that Indigenous cuisine isn't even on the radar a lot of the times, like, you know, 99% of the time when people think Canadian cuisine. Um, but there's a lot of factors into that. We think yeah, like poutine, maple, like those are Canadian things, but most like regional areas, because Canada is so big, what people would think is Canadian cuisine is generally the cuisine of the people that settled in that area originally, right? Like we were settled mm -hmm. by the English here, and that has a lot of influence on Haudenosaunee cuisine um, is English, and that's the reason why. Um, those That's one of my favorite time periods, actually, is to cook is around like the 17, 1800s. Because to me, that's kind of like that fusion cuisine time. And I think that kind of lent its hand to when I decided to open Uego. And when before that, I was doing catering. That was kind of my inspiration that how do we have this everyday indigenous um, food? Like, how do we switch over a bit of what we're having? Yeah, absolutely. And but I think you alluded a little bit to your cuisine, saying that you love cooking food from the 17, 1800s because you sort of saw that, like, that's where that first culture of fusion really came in place. I was really, really lucky that when I first started my uh, theater career, Tanya, is um, a lot of all my mentors in the theater scene actually were indigenous. And so they had the chance to kind of um, teach me a lot about about indigenous culture, about First Nations and about and feed me some of their food. But I will fully admit they really love serving me fry bread. And I would say that, that <laughs> there like, we go. You, my, you, my association with indigenous cuisine is a lot to do with fry bread. And maybe this is a great opportunity for you to share, like for you, what is indigenous cuisine? For me being Haudenosaunee, the difference is we're, we're actually kind of like this little alien group. And in the terms of every other nation around us, we're, we're surrounded by hunter-gatherer cultures and other um, First Nations, Ojibwe, you know. But for us here, we were actually agrarian people. So that's what made us different in that we had a ton, like three sisters comes for us. We were like, we grew everything in our villages were so big that we were largely vegetarian. So that was what was very different. So in terms of when you look at the grand scheme in this area, there there wasn't much cuisine because it's just like meat, berries, wild rice, like very simple things. Like I I grew up with traditional foods and my mother being a gardener and seed keeper that was always around. She's kind of like, oh, here, you know, we grew this, uh, make it happen. <laughs> and but then also being a chef, um, you know, it took me quite a while to be, to think like, oh, you know, I didn't know anybody would interested in, in, in mixing those things together. But those requests were coming from the community. And for me is how do you feed a crowd when we have such a limited supply? 
I, I love that. Ooh. And also, I think you need to give yourself a little bit more credit. Like, I've been following your uh, your restaurant. I think this is another one where I'm going to butcher pronunciation, but Yahweh Khan in, um, you know, Google Maps says Caledonia um, on the website, Oswegan. Oswegan, yeah. Oswegan? Yeah, is... we're, we're on territory, yeah. But um, looking at every day you post a new menu, the menu changes every day. Uh, you have a beautiful photo of what dishes are served. Like we're recording this uh, a little bit before Canada Day to anyone sitting in the car. And on, on June 29th, you got a photo of the baked hot honey chicken. Uh, you got a photo of uh, the squash soup down at the bottom. And like, you know, your platings look great in spite of, you know, these are definitely comfort food dishes. So, uh, I mean, you're definitely feeding the Instagram as well as the people. <laughs> I mean, we try. The only thing we have to impress is a takeout box, so it, it gets hard sometimes. But we, we figure we figure it out. <laughs> you, you know, I love that you but, sort of set a date on kind of a moment where you know I think our cuisine was influenced a bit more by globalization and and you know factory cuisine in the sixties and seventies, and I think we kind of hit like peak McDonald's culture in the eighties and nineties. So it's nice to see. I think in 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 all aspects of cuisine, not just indigenous cuisine, more of a focus of farm to table and now foraging becoming really popular. Um, how do you think the definition of Canadian cuisine is going to evolve as this becomes more a core to the fabric of how people are eating? And a, a second part of the question is how will indigenous cuisine become a larger part of this Canadian identity? To be honest, I think the Canadians are going to forget the word poutine. That's how I feel right now that you're not going to hear about that anymore. Um, Indigenous people are definitely going to reflect that because now that we have a voice, we have platforms we can talk about, we can share things without being scared or being arrested or getting our asses kicked, right? Like, there's a lot of of reasons why we did things the way we did. Um, But to be able to have that voice now where people can look and say, hey, but the outside world is looking too. So even when tourism comes in, they're looking for different experiences, right? Like, Poutines hit it big, man. They're worldwide. You can get that anywhere, right? I just got back from Prague. They got poutine, you know. So um, I think when, in terms of Canadian cuisine, though, it's the first time where Canadians are saying, "Oh, yeah, like actually, what is that, right?" And and for me, I meet like many like recent immigrants, and they have no idea what Indigenous cuisine is, but they're so open to it. They're just like, "This is amazing. I never had that." I, like one of my favorite groups to to cook for as teenagers and most teenagers like they're ridiculous right you can't feed them anything but when they try indigenous like they've had everything they've had every cuisine and they've had them all mixed together so when we can give them a flavor they've never had before they're really interested in that and how to make it and um i think just maybe with online culture just we have a huge respect for food again and i think that's been really missing in the industry for many years i'm also a chef so i'm like what's on trend what's their new thing like you know let's mix them together if it's rice let's make it wild rice if it's you know if it's beef let's make it bison or elk like so there's easy ways for us to tweak that and say hey like we do have these foods here and it's okay to take influence from other places because put it as showing people especially that was part of our culture we were willing to bring in and take anything in that was positive and was going to help our people and i definitely think food is one of those things and i don't think our ancestors would be mad by us being influenced by the cultures that are around us because we're taught to think worldly and thought that we're all here on the same planet we have to think together we have to work together or it's not going to happen right and um i think just that world view that i've been taught since childhood really 
relays into my menus and my cooking and my thought process behind doing things because there's a lot of indigenous chefs that are scared to go outside of the realm of what their community knows and like you literally get yelled at like why did you do that (laughs) you know and um i went through a lot of that in the beginning too like i cook for different age groups i think that's why i set them apart like a lot of elders need to be gluten free but they have also a lot of them had won't eat game meat because if they've had it bad they don't want to have it ever again so again like a true chef i think the you know your capability of being able to bridge multiple cultures due to your worldview is such a good inspiration to any young indigenous chef who's looking at making their start and just you know like kind of overcoming maybe like sort of the the desire to kind of stay true to your own culture, but recognizing that we are living in a, an increasingly global society and there's nothing wrong with taking the inspiration and tools that you have. And I think what a wonderful sentiment for you to share. It just says like, you know, I don't think our ancestors would be mad at us if we are, you know, continuing to kind of take the um, sources of inspiration and resources around us to, to the best um, to, to for our disposal and to do the best work that we can. So super appreciate you joining us, Tanya. I wish we could speak more. I wish we could keep going on and on about this. We'll just have to have <laughs> you back at some point in the future. How can people find you? Um, well, I'm definitely on all socials under either Chef Tanya or Yuego. I have Instagram. I do have a YouTube channel. One of the things I'm hoping to do is to get back to that this summer. Um, I also have cheftanybrand.com and yeah, this will see you online. I definitely I have a TikTok also under um, <laughs> Chef Tanya. Coming up after the break, we are con- going to continue to dive into Canada days. We go coast to coast, take a look at what wine regions are offering outside of Ontario. So stick around. We're going to get into all things Canadian wine on 640 Toronto. This is Tasting Together. You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's News, today's talk. 640 Toronto. It's that time on Tasting Together where Andre Pru and I, Maroki Tong, are joined by Danny Longo from the Global Newsroom. Hey, Danny, what are you doing today for Canada Day? Oh, I am celebrating with family, of course, and uh, hopefully enjoying a nice, beautiful day. Awesome. Well, since in the theme of kind of talking about our country, we decided today that we should talk about all things Canadian wine. And Andre, I think you have something great planned for us. I did yeoman's work this week, putting together some reports about the wine regions in Canada that maybe most people in the car aren't familiar with. Um, I don't know if either of you know this, but did you know that they are growing some really great wine in Nova Scotia? I did yes. know that. Yes. All right. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of people in the car who did not. So I caught up with that's Haley. That's why we're the wine nerds, Andre. I know. That's it. We are the wine nerds. Anyways, I caught up with Haley Brown, who's the executive director of Wines of Nova Scotia, to talk a little bit about what's going on in Nova Scotia. So we have 19 grape wineries here in the province. Um, I believe it's about 1.9 million liters of wine per year. Um, and that, that equates to about 211,000 cases. So we're, you know, we're definitely a boutique winery, uh, wine region. Um, and we're definitely, you know, emerging and, and up and coming. And what is Nova Scotia known for in terms of wine? 
Yeah, so Tidal Bay is absolutely our, our trademark and, and, and signature wine. We have um, 14 of our, our farm wineries that produce it. And and how I can you know best explain it, and I myself don't have a wine background, and I, I love that I am part of the industry. The best way I can explain it to, to, to everyone is, you know, when you look at um, Champagne region in France or a or the Chianti in, in Italy. Um, Tidal Bay is sort of the what we call the Appalachian wine in, in Nova Scotia. And 14 of the wineries um, produce it here in Nova Scotia. And, and, and you know, we, you know, last year alone, I was asked to speak in the U.S. eight times to, to talk about Tidal Bay. And, and just coming back from a bunch of our wineries went out to the U.K. and, and Denmark um, this last, um, last six months. And, you know, an, an incredible amount of press and um, very well received was was our Tidal Bay. We're also known for our sparklings and our our whites. And as a you know a, an emerging wine region, you know we're working on our, our reds as well. Um, and our rosés are are impeccable. What yeah. is Tidal Bay? So no, Tidal Bay is uh, Nova Scotia in a glass is, is how some of our winemakers term it. Uh, it's Nova Scotia's signature wine and um, it, it, the minerality, it's, it's crisp, it's fruit forward and it's, uh, uh, it's paired incredibly well with our seafood. So after my interview with Haley, she did say she's going to try to connect us with some examples of Tidal Bay. So we may have an expanded segment of that in the future. But if you need your fix of Nova Scotia wine, you can grab the Benjamin Bridge Nova 7 at the LCBO, currently a Vintage is Essential. So it's always available. That's great. And uh, one thing that wasn't really mentioned was that they use a lot of hybrids to make wine in Nova Scotia. And yes. I feel like the next region that you're about to share, Andre, which is Quebec, also uses a lot of hybrids. You know, I was actually surprised at some of the answers to the questions I gave him, but I'm not going to bury the lead here. I had a chance to speak with Yvonne Curion, who uh, he is the proprietor of Domain Saint-Jacques, but he was actually one of the people responsible for setting up the uh, Quebec wines, uh, essentially VQA, the rules they take for, uh, the rules they use for winemaking. But um, I asked him what's going on in Quebec. We're getting to a thousand hectares, so 3,000 acres approximately, I guess. And uh, we produce uh, its young vines, so it's been planted in the last six, seven years. We have tripled the plantation. So we're around 3 million bottles per year, so we still play in bottles and still have cases. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, the, the whole uh, Quebec vineyard is that. And uh, us at Domaine Saint-Jacques, we're at 12,000 cases approximately. Do Quebecers drink Quebecois wine? There's, like in Ontario, still préjugé in place by older people, but the young generation, the, the 20 to 35, are big fans. So we're out of stock many months a year because of them. Do you want to talk about what grapes are being grown in Quebec and how that affects the industry? Actually, the bloom is starting here on Chardonnay and Gamay which probably is the same on the bench and probably a few days earlier it was in uh, in Niagara. So uh, there's not a big difference on that. The big, big difference is the peak in the colds in the winter. So we have 12 to 20 hours and now it's changing with the climate change, but 12 to 20 hours colder than minus 22 
And uh, this is why uh, we have developed uh, the geotextile technique here at Domaine Saint-Jacques. We were the first to, to, uh, to use that and the first to, to plant the pinots, pinot gris, pinot noir. And uh, we, have, we have 17 hectares of vinifera and 6.5 hectares of French hybrids. There, we don't have any American hybrids, but uh, Quebec industry, wine industry, is mostly planted, was mainly planted up to five years ago with American hybrids. So the Frontenac, the Market, the, the Petit Pelle, uh, uh, and all these varietals. But now French, hybrid, French hybrids, and especially Chardonnay. Uh, Chardonnay has become the second or the third uh, varietal that is most planted in, 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 in the Quebec industry. Oh, Maroki, it fills my heart with so much pride and joy to hear our neighbors to the east planting more Chardonnay in favor of hybrids. Danny, have you had Quebecois wine? I don't think I have. I know I've had a, uh, it was a, it was an iced, uh, oh man, I think it was an iced cider from yeah. Quebec, which was, which was quite good. Um, but I, I, I don't think I've had any, I definitely have not had any reds. You know, there's a chance maybe when, uh, I was out there, I might've had a Quebec wine, but I don't, I can't, nothing I can recall. You know, the, the best way I can describe Quebecois wines is like the industry is so young there, but it is exciting as a consumer and not just because it's Chardonnay and it's me. But, you know, it, this must be what it feels like when you're a hockey scout and you see this really young player with all this talent. And I really think that in 20, 30 years, Quebec will be a larger player in the field, um, you know, with the evolution of, of viticultural practices like geotextiles and things like that. It'll be easier to keep the grapes alive in the winter. Um, the last place I reached out to, obviously, our neighbors to the far west in BC. We couldn't ignore them. I got caught up with Lindsay Kelm of Wines of BC. How much wine is grown in BC? We actually just got our 2022 um, crop acreage report, and it has actually grown quite significantly over the past year. And we now have 12,681 acres planted in British Columbia. I think a lot of people in Ontario would be familiar with the Okanagan as a large and quite well-known wine growing region. But where all in BC can you grow grapes? Yeah, we actually have nine um, GIs or geographical indications, as we call them here in BC. So the official wine regions that we have are the Okanagan Valley, the Similkameen Valley, Fraser Valley, which is down in the lower mainland Vancouver area, Vancouver Island, the Gulf Islands, Thompson Valley, which is up near Kamloops, Shushwap, Lillooet, and the Kootenays. There is a diverse variety of climates growing in BC, everything from cool climate to warmer climate down in the south of the Okanagan. Um, if you're talking to people in Ontario, what's the best way to dis define BC wine as a whole? I think one of the words that always describes BC wine for a lot of people here is freshness and vibrance. Because of this super uh, shift we get in the diurnal temperature range, we can be five degrees in the morning and we can be 40 degrees during the day almost. And it's such a huge shift. But because of those cool nights, you get that really great acidity retention. So the wines are super fresh, super vibrant. They have that juicy character to them as well. So I think that's uh, the calling card of BC wine. Oh yeah, Andre, BC. I mean, fantastic region for wine, the Okanagan Valley. There's so many great things. And it's just, it's such a shame that we don't have more BC wines in Ontario available like at the stores like the LCBO. I couldn't agree I more. So many opinions on that. I mean, I actually had the same thought about Quebecois wine and Nova Scotian wine. I I don't know if I wanted to know that there were so many more GIs in uh, 
British Columbia because I barely scratched the surface of the Okanagan. And I'm like, what do you mean there's more now and I have to go back and try so much more? But what a great way to show everyone the incredible production that we have all across the country. And I think as we wrap up the segment, it's probably worth, of course, shouting out, as always, Ontario Wines. And that would just make some pretty amazing stuff here and if you guys are looking for additional plans over this long weekend over tomorrow or monday i think you should head out to a winery i'll be doing that that's how i'm planning to spend the whole weekend guys so you'll find me under grapevine somewhere well there you have it so if you guys go to a winery you can look for andre out in the grapevines and um support your local region we make fantastic production all right, thanks for tuning in to our Canada edition of Tasting Together. Make sure you lock the dial to 640 Toronto next Saturday at 5 p.m. when you might learn something on purpose again. Cheers!